go to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 31, and then go to Joshua, sec- Joshua 2, and you can put your finger there. And while you're going there, let me just kind of catch you up to where we are. Uh, today we are concluding a series called Commendable Faith, where we have been looking at some of the characters mentioned in Hebrews 11. And specifically, we're not just looking at their Old Testament stories, but we're looking at their faith. Because in the first two verses of Hebrews, we are told that it is through their faith that they received commendation from God. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11.1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. And that phrase, the people of old received their commendation, is incredibly important. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the original readers of this book, of the book of Hebrews, was Jewish believers. And they were accustomed to receiving their commendation through the law, through works. That if you are good enough, if you are moral enough, if you observe the ceremonies and the rituals, if you can keep the law, then you will be accepted by God. But the writer all throughout the book of Hebrews is demonstrating that no, your commendation does not come through the law. It does not come through works, but it comes through faith. And so that's why he begins in verse 3 by saying, by faith Abel, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, that we saw with Abel that he was saved by faith because he brought a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice that would ultimately point to the sacrifice that Christ would make on the cross. And then we saw Enoch. That was a fun one, right? Uh, We saw Enoch walked with God by faith. He was, by faith, he was taken up, that in the midst of a world filled with sin, filled with despair, Enoch walked with God. It's just incredible. We saw it with Noah, that he obeyed God by faith when God asked him, to build a boat. And I love in that text where it says Noah had a reverent fear when he constructed that boat. We talked about Abraham, that Abraham by faith left his home because God made a promise to him that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. We saw in the faith of Sarah that even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of doubt, God does not take away his promise to us. And then we saw the testing of Abraham's faith when God asked him to sacrifice his beloved son. And we were given a picture of a loving father laying down his son so that through his sacrifice, sin can be forgiven, which is exactly what we see in Jesus when he lays down his life as a sacrifice, fulfilling the promise that was given to Abraham. And then the last two weeks, we talked about Moses, right? That Moses refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh, and by faith he led the people of God out of Egypt. And it was by faith that he believed that God would protect the people in the Passover, and by faith he crossed the Red Sea. And that brings us to today. Sorry, that was a long recap. This last week. That brings us to today, and we are talking about Rahab. Rahab. And I'm very excited about this one. So let me read to you from Hebrews 11.31. And then we'll jump back to Joshua 2. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then go back to Joshua 2. We're not going to, just so you know, we're not going to go through the entire story here in Joshua 2. We're focusing on 
why she is mentioned in Hebrews 11. So we're not going to cover the full narrative, just a portion of it. So let me read to you the first 12-ish verses. It says, Now Joshua, this is Joshua 2, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Chittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out that land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered the house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hit them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way of the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, in verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. All right, well, if I said the sentence... That person is a person of faith. What kind of person do you think of? Like, what kind of person, what, what about them makes you think that they are, in fact, a person of faith? Well, today, I think for most of us, the person that the Bible describes as a person of faith, it's a little surprising, right? That today we're looking at the faith of Rahab. But before we do that, I want to give some contact, context as to where we are, where Rahab's story falls in the redemptive story of Scripture, that the book of Joshua begins with the people of God right on the cusp of entering the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. In the book of Deuteronomy, the book right before Joshua ends, uh, before Joshua, it ends with Moses climbing on a mountain where he looks over the promised land, and it's on that mountain that Moses dies. And his death ushers in a new era of history as Joshua takes up the leadership of the nation of Israel. He is the one that is destined to lead them into the promised land. And where we find ourselves in the story is that the people of God have been wandering around the wilderness for the last 40 years. And this isn't the first time that they are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Do you remember the first it was in the book of Numbers, right? The story of the 12 spies. That they were on, at that point, they were on the southern tip of the promised land. And Moses sends some spies into the land. And based on the report of most of the spies, um, the people decide to rebel against God. They decided they don't trust God, right? They decided they don't trust God and that they were going to rebel against God. And then that ends up with them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're back. Okay, they're back. They're not on the southern side, but they're just to the east of the Jordan River. And the book of Joshua starts off with an extremely surprising character. 
And what's so interesting is that God centers his plan on one of the most unlikeliest of people. That in chapter 2, we see Rahab, and she isn't just some kind of side character. This isn't some kind of side story. Rahab takes center stage right after Joshua is introduced as the leader of Israel. (laughs) I mean, the book of Joshua is known as one of the most nationalistic Israelite books of the Bible. It's about, it's about the glory of God, but it's also about the glory of Israel's, Israel. It's about battles. <laughs> it's, a, it's about generals. And it starts like that in chapter one. You see Joshua being commissioned by God as his general. And by the end of chapter one, Joshua is giving orders out. It's this, this picture that we're about to march into Jericho. But as soon as chapter two starts, the story cuts away from General Joshua and it focuses our attention on an outcast, a Gentile prostitute named Rahab. And it shines a light on her as one of the models as what it, of what it means to live by faith. She is one of the most important characters of all of Scripture. It's completely unexpected. If you're, if you're a Jewish reader and you read this and you get to chapter 2, this moment is completely unexpected. And yet... It absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? This is what God does. He works through the most unexpected people and in the most unexpected way. So let's look at verse 1 again. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. I want you to notice something. The Bible is intentional in mentioning that Rahab is a prostitute. You notice that? In fact, we typically, that's how we associate her. I remember a couple weeks ago, I said, they said, where are we going with the series? I said, Rahab. I said, we're preaching about Rahab in a couple weeks. And someone said, oh, the prostitute. Like, that's just how we associate her, right? In fact, every time that Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, the Bible is intentional in pointing out that she is a prostitute, which is kind of weird, right? At face value, that seems Weird, why is God so intent on us understanding that this girl is a prostitute? I mean, Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute. James, when James talks about Rahab, it says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. And then here, in Joshua 2, when we first meet her, now what is God doing? Why is the Bible doing that? Why is it so intent on us knowing that Rahab is a prostitute? I think, I think the Bible's doing two things. I think he's doing two things. First, He is reminding us, Scripture is reminding us that there is no person, no person, to which God cannot or will not use. I would be willing to bet, be willing to bet, that there are some of us in here that would be tempted to say, well, God could never use me because of this, because I've done this, because I used to be this. And God's reminding us all throughout Scripture, no, I will use whomever I choose to use. So listen, if that's you, If you would have that temptation to say, look, because of what I've done, there is a limit to which God can use me, I would say there is a voice that is lying to you. That is not the voice of God. And here's why I would say that. Because God's word has spoken, and it's a declaration of hope, it's a declaration of grace, it's a declaration of redemption through Jesus Christ. And second, and I'm inferring a little bit here, but I think scripture is doing what we all do in our own stories. That in our own stories, we should be quick to say, well, I was once this, but God has done this in my life. That in Rahab's name, like in the way that she's described, we see the testimony of the work of God. She was a prostitute. 
but God has done a work in and through her. I mean, I think sometimes when we read her name, we misinterpret the tone that I think we want to, that God wants to be communicated. Like when we talk about Rahab, it's almost like Rahab, the prostitute, you know, and it's almost like a tone of shame. But I think scripture is reminding us in here in Hebrews and James, no, it's Rahab, the prostitute. It's a, it's a tone of victory that God has done a work here. And that should be celebrated that God would save her, a girl that was broken, a girl that was an outcast, a girl with no hope. We should all learn how to communicate our stories like this. Like, I I wonder, and I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but I just wonder if when you share your testimony, when you share your story, are there parts of it that you're tempted to leave out because you're a little ashamed of where you've come from, of what's happened in the past? I, I think there's parts of my story that I'm tempted to leave out, that I might be a little ashamed. And I want to encourage you, do not be ashamed of your past. Because if you have faith in Christ, he's not. How do I know that? How do I know that he's not ashamed? If you are in Christ, how do I know that he's not ashamed? Because of the story of Rahab. Here she is. And the Bible does not hide her past. Doesn't hide her past. God is not ashamed to call her his own, and he's not ashamed to call you his own. Just like Rahab, God will use your story to share the grace and the glory of Christ with the people around you. So don't be ashamed of what, where God has brought you from. God is putting Rahab's story right in front of us, saying, look at who, what I can do. Look at who I redeem. Now, look at verse 2. <clears throat> and it was told to the king of Jericho, Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here to tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, the king of Jericho gets wind that these men are at Rahab's house. And at this point, we have no reason to believe that she isn't just going to sell them out. I mean, she's a Gentile. She has no reason to not tell these men of the king about the Israelites. But look at verse 4. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And then she goes on to tell a lie. She said, true, the men came, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, here's the first thing that I want to highlight about the faith of Rahab. Rahab's faith in God produces great risk. It produces great risk. Rahab's decision to hide these men and her decision not to sell them out comes with great risk for her own life. Now, Rahab lies, and is her lie justified? No, no, I think she's wrong for lying here. I think, I personally think God would have protected them even if she decided to tell the truth, but her courage remains not because she lied, but because she hid them. That's what Hebrews focuses in on her faith. She literally puts her life at risk by hiding these men. She's willing to risk everything for God. And as you look throughout the scriptures, you will see a thread that when God calls us to have faith, there's always an element of risk. There's some part of us that is a little fearful of stepping forward in faith. There is something that is terrifying about truly surrendering all that you are and all that you have to God, that we have a tendency to want to hold on to control. We want to control our 
lives. And the call of faith is to say, okay, God, I will give all control over to you. Everything that I have is yours. And this is so important because I think there are some of us that aren't willing to do that because our hearts are ruled by fear and not by faith. Um, There's an anonymous quote. Uh, I think I've seen it on a meme. Uh, But I've heard Katie say it many times when she talks to young 20-somethings about moving to another country for the sake of the gospel. And the the anonymous quote is this, um, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are made for. It's kind of a fun quote, but here's what it's saying. You are not created for a safe, comfortable life. And the reality is that faith actually leads us away from comfort. We were not created to be ruled by fear, but we are created to believe that our God is worth risking everything for. That includes our reputations, our money, our career. It also includes every part of our souls that we want to hold on to. Fear has a tendency to paralyze us, that we want to stay in the same place because it's safe. But here's a question. What would it look like for you to actually make a step of faith? whatever the area that is, admitting that your marriage needs help, admitting that you have an addiction, what would, it look down, what would it look like to actually sit down with your neighbor or a family member or a friend and actually tell them the story of Christ? See, fear has a tendency to paralyze us, to make us want to stay in the same spot. What would it look like to sell everything that you have and move to another culture, to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it. See, faith all throughout Scripture produces hearts that take risks, that are bold for the glory of God, that are bold for a God that casts out all fear. It looks to the worth of Christ, and it finds its anchor in his name and his power. And Rahab, she hides the men in her roof. She risked everything. Why? Why would she do that? Well, the answer to that is the second thing that we see that faith produces in her, that faith in the Lord produces awe and wonder in the works of God. Awe and wonder in the works of God. Look at Joshua 2, 8. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, listen, here's what she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how you dried up the water of the Red Sea before when, before when you came out of Egypt, and w- what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, when you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is in He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, a little interesting side note here. From verses 9 to 16, Rahab is the only one who speaks. Did you notice that? And it may not seem like that big of a deal, like why is it even worth mentioning? Well, it's actually extremely important in the full narrative of Scripture because it's one of the longest uninterrupted speeches by a woman in the entire Bible. Did you know that? Like, she is not interrupted by the narrator. She's not interrupted by the men. And this is so important because God has chosen in his revealed word to focus our attention on this woman. And in this moment, it's not on her profession. It's not on her choices. It's on her faith. That God is showing her value and honor in this moment by telling her story 
uninterrupted, which is significant. It's value that's found in her faith. Now, look at what she says. Did you see the on wonder? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens and of the earth, all in wonder. And I just got to ask the question, man, when is the last time you were in awe because of the works of God? I think we're just too bored as Christians today. We're just too bored. When's the last time you were really in awe and wonder? And what's interesting here, most of what she says comes from what is known as the Song of the Sea or the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. She's basically almost quoting that word for word, that this girl has somehow gotten a hold of that song and she has studied it and she has believed it. And even more incredible, notice what she calls God. Did you notice it? She calls him the Lord. She uses the personal name for God. She doesn't call him God, Elohim, like the rest of the Gentiles do. She calls him Yahweh, the Lord. That is extremely significant. The na- it's the name that God uses with his people, his covenant name. And somehow Rahab, we aren't told how, she isn't just operating on rumors here. This isn't a God. She's not talking about a God she doesn't know. She knows God. She understands the theology of what has happened. She knows why these men are here. She knows why God dried up the Red Sea. She knows him. She knows him and she has believed him. We have to understand, in this woman, by saying the personal name for God, she is claiming that she belongs to that God. That she is in relationship with that God. God isn't just some deity out there. This is Yahweh. I am who I am. And she knows him. That is an incredible, incredible faith for this Gentile woman. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea. She says, she, she says the Lord, your God, is the God of the heaven and of earth. The awe and wonder that this woman has. Man, do you really, do you ever see that? Are you ever driven in your affections to think on God like that? That you are the God that can do this. You are God of the heaven. You are God of the earth. You are God of the sea. I mean, do you, are you ever driven in your emotions and your affections to think about the greatness and glory of God and what he's done? I think we are just too bored. And faith produces in us Hearts that are stirred for his name. That see his works and go, wow, our God is good. And I think the problem is that there are things in our lives that if we're honest, we believe that God just can't do it. We look at something that's happened, a trauma, that is just destroying your soul. And it hurts. And you think God can never heal me of that. Or an addiction that you might have a loss that you've suffered. Or maybe there's a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend that you would say, they will never believe in Christ. They're too far gone. Faith does not produce that kind of heart. Faith produces a heart that says, I believe that he can do it. I believe, I believe in the awe and wonder of God. And if he chooses to do something, he will do it. Faith produces that in us. The awe and wonder, 
that comes from knowing who our God is. And here's the deal, man. You you have no idea what God is going to do. I have no idea what God is going to do. We are so limited in our ability to control things. You have no idea what's coming in your life. You have no idea the pain that's coming, the suffering that might be coming. You have no idea the joy or the victories that might be coming. You have no idea. It's a mystery to you. But what's not a mystery is who your God is and that he will be with you through it all. I mean, consider this story. Consider the spies in this story. They have no idea who this woman is. They have no idea. And in the providence of God, he brings them together. Just as he has been working in the people of Israel for the last 40 years as they were wandering around the desert, he's been working on this girl, showing him, showing her who he is. I mean, think about it. When we meet Rahab in verse 1, she is nothing but a Gentile prostitute. That's what they know about her. That's all we know about her. She is even an outcast among her own people. She is an enemy of the Israelites, and she is destined to be wiped out with the rest of them. But by the end of chapter 2, she has shown that she knows the Lord and that she has faith in God and she has risked her life by hiding these men. Who would have guessed that? They wouldn't have, I guarantee it. We wouldn't have. Only God knows. I bet Rahab had no idea why God was showing her who he was. I bet she had no idea. I bet she has no idea. And it's the same with us, that God in his providence is doing things in our hearts right now that are preparing us for what he's going to do in and through us in the future. Now, we look at this story and we go, oh, I see what God was doing there. Yeah, I see how he's moving the pieces on the board. I, I see how God's working. They didn't know. The spies had no idea. And just like us right now, you have no idea why God is teaching you the kind of things that he's teaching you right now. I don't know why that happened to you, whatever happened, but God does. And in his providence, he will heal, he will move the pieces on the board, and he's also not only working in you, but he's working in others that you may not even know yet that are going to encourage you and also that you're going to encourage, that God will use your stories together to bring about his name's glory. So, the next thing that we see in Rahab is faith, is that faith in God produces salvation. It produces salvation. In the case of Rahab, not just for her, but for all the nations. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Um, you can just listen if you want. It's two verses. Matthew 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus. Like I said, Rahab is one of the most important characters in all of Scripture. And here's why. In Matthew 1, 5, as it's going through the genealogy of Jesus, it says in verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Does that name sound familiar? And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So this woman goes from being a Gentile prostitute under the curse of death to being the great-great-grandmother of David. And from her line would come the promised Messiah. That her faith produced salvation for herself. That she believed God. She believed who he was. She believed what he was doing. And God saved her. But more than that, her faith leads to the coming of our 
king. Faith produces salvation, and faith produces salvation for us too. When we believe that Jesus Christ has come from heaven to earth, he has lived the perfect life, he has died the death that we could not die, and he has risen from the grave, God brings us salvation. That's what faith does. Now, to close, I want to talk about one other person, um, because as I was studying and praying this week, uh, the Holy Spirit just kept bringing another woman in Scripture to mind, and I'm not really sure why. I think maybe God wants someone to hear this story. Um, But I also think her story isn't all that different from Rahab. So go with me to Luke chapter 7. Um, Luke chapter 7. So while you're going there, um, a Pharisee in this story invites Jesus over to his house for dinner and a discussion. It's pretty normal with rabbis. All kinds of people of the town would have gathered at this dinner and discussion. The Pharisee was the teacher of the town, and the teacher of the town has invited the guest rabbi over for a discussion. There was an educational element to the people. There was an entertainment element for the people, right? So they didn't have, I don't know, Jersey Shore back then, right? So they go, you go to the rabbi's house and you listen to the discussion. Um, and when that would happen, all the windows uh, and the doors would be open on the house. There would have been pillows put on the ground for people to sit. I mean, it would have been a stacked place. People would have been standing in the doorway. And in Luke seven thirty-seven, we meet a woman. We meet a woman. And here's what it says. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, the text says, behold, well, you have to ask the question, okay, what's the behold here? It's almost dramatic, right? Like, behold, well, what's the drama? The drama is not that the woman came into the house. All sorts of people would have been there. All sorts of people would have been there. The drama is that this kind of woman stepped into the house. What's a person like you doing in a place like this? That's what the text is communicating. I do want to take a second and say something here because let's, if we're honest, some of you feel like that when you walk into a worship gathering. What am I doing in a place like this? That you feel the weight of your sin and you feel the fear that everyone else here doesn't see you but that they only see your sin. And I want you to know, and there are many who want you to know, you are exactly where God wants you to be. That you belong in this place. That God is seeking you out. So the text says, and behold, the woman of the city who was a sinner. So the natural question is here, okay, so what did she do? Why is she identified as a sinner? Most people believe that she was a prostitute. It could also mean that she was promiscuous, but here's what she does in verse 38. It says, In standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, how in the world is she standing behind him? At gatherings like this, there would be a banquet table, a small table that was close to the ground where your elbows could, where you would lay on your stomach and your elbows could rest on it so your feet would be pointing out behind you. And this girl gets to Jesus, and she doesn't say anything. She doesn't bother with worldly pleasantries. She doesn't try to give an explanation for her sin. She just starts weeping. Like Luke uses the word for rain. She doesn't just tear up. Her tears rain down. And then she unbinds her hair, which you didn't do that. You did not do that in public. 
Your hair, the hair of a Jewish woman was her glory. It was, you only did that when you were with your husband. And she uses it as a rag for Jesus' feet. And then she says she kisses his feet. Um, and then along with that, on that word attached to it is the words kataphileo. It means she kisses his feet with love. And then she takes ointment or perfume and perfume that she once used to lure men is used to worship the Son of God. I mean, this girl meets God in the flesh. And in front of everybody, she unbinds her hair, she cries, she worships. And then what does Jesus tell her in Luke 7.50? Look at it. It reminds me of Rahab. It says, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. So what about us? What about you, man? Are you willing to take a risk in faith and worship him? Worship him. I don't know what that looks like. For, for Rahab, it meant risking her life. It meant hiding these men in the roof. For this girl in Luke 7, it meant not caring what others thought of her as she wept in worship. She weeped in repentance. So the question for us is, what would it look like for you to faithfully respond to the word of God? Like when you see him clearly revealed, what is the step of faith to take? Is it to sing and raise your hands? Is it to pray? Is it to confess something? Is it to ask God to heal you? What is the step of faith that you would take in response to who he is? The God of the heaven above, the God of the earth below, the God who can part the Red Sea, the God of awe and wonder. What kind of affections does that produce in you for him in faith? I can't answer that for you. But here's what I tell you just to close. He is worthy of our worship and in him, we will find redemption for our souls, and in him, we will find peace. The thing that we chase so fast and that we compromise so much for, that I would find peace in the things of this world. I would try to find satisfaction in sin or things or reputation or career or an idea of the future that Scripture revealed says, no, we go in peace and the salvation that comes through faith. 